On communication, the medium is the massage. Marshall McLuhan, known to many as the father of communication studies, had as his central thesis that the medium is the message. I learnt this the first week of my communications degree, and the proverb, for want of a better noun, was drip-fed to me through the rest of my four years of tuition. To be honest, it was a concept I paid lip service to. Oh yeah, medium is the message, what a wanker. And when I found out about that time when McLuhan's work was typoed and it changed to the medium is the massage and he ran with it, I kind of thought that he was completely cracked and people were just nodding along to due to his fatherly academic status. I mean, some probably were. <laughs> Nothing like delegation of thinking. But what does this concept actually mean? The medium is the message. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. Well, just that, the mode from which you access information feeds and informs your perception of that information. I've lapsed into Unispeak, so let me put it clearer. The font can uh, shape the way you read something, but that's just font and obviously not translatable in an audio file. The overarching concept at play here is that style has a direct impact on message. You can have the best idea in the world, but as soon as you drop a use into the conversation, all those with academic pretensions will immediately switch off and begin, begin planning your imminent destruction a la eternal brimstone and fire, reason, crimes against grammanity. So style shapes thought, but how deep does this concept run? Surprisingly deep? Insanely deep mind-blowingly deep. It's a concept packed with pull and punch. My god, McLuhan was on something and it wasn't just crack. My analysis of this concept is about to go places. Firstly, I want to pull your attention away from the online onto the very concept I want to discuss here, literacy. Literacy is one of the most defining and meaningful ways the modern civilized human separates themselves from our caveman ancestors. The equipment, i.e. brain, is mostly the same, but here is one of the finest examples of how consumption of a medium, literacy versus orality, shapes thought. To start off with, and yes, I realise we've been going for a couple of minutes, let's look at one of the classic examples of literacy, the book. Alberto Maguel, in The Shape of the Book, argues that books not only store what we know, the shape of them styles it. For example, on a very basic level, the shape of the codex binding, which allows the flipping of pages, allows the reader to consume a part while retaining a sense of the whole. To go deeper, the shape of the book reflects and determines how the reader consumes it. One example is the Mesopotamian Code of Laws, which stood at a 60, an imposing 67 square feet in diameter, rendering itself both commanding and authoritative whilst also storing knowledge. Another historical example is the huge service books used by the Catholic Church around the 5th century, which styled its knowledge with its daunting size, 12 to 16 inches in diameter, forcing itself to be communally read and disallowing any intimate perusal or sense of personal possession. The invention of Gutenberg's press revolutionised the shape and consumption of the book. The press, made up of prefabricated metal letters that could be arranged and rearranged to quickly stamp out carbon copies of the same page instead of having each laboriously handwritten, meant that books could, for the first time, be mass-produced. This allowed books to be taken out of the monopolised grasp of the church and aristocracy and begin a societal transition into mass literacy. 
This change in the social status of books is signaled by their changing formats. They went from the 12 by 16 inch size tomes mentioned above, which were difficult to handle and uncomfortable to carry, but also inconvenient to store, and which elevated the written world to a grandiose level and disallowed any but communal reading, to a pocketbook of elegant sobriety, which styled its reader as an intellectual. The mass-produced homogenization of the book meant that the written word began to filter down to the working class with whom it now shared its stored knowledge with. The stylization of the book again shifted form to squarish, set in tiny type, with typographical covers that appealed neither to the hand nor to the eye to reflect this societal change. To look at contemporary examples, we find that fictional books tend towards small and cosy volumes that are perfectly perfect for nestling into a lounge with, whilst factual books are characterised by their ample and substantial size. But for a true democratisation of the written world, just look at the online in general and Facebook in particular. The blocks of text are uniformly shaped and set in the same background regardless of the societal position in the real world. Now that's a medium with a message I can subscribe to. Impact of literacy. An interesting side note on the differentiation between literate and oral peoples. Walter Ong, in his chapter on some psychodynamics of orality, argues that without storing knowledge into writing, stylization of language shifts from the visual realm to the purely audio time sphere. He further argues that literate cultures interiorize their linear writing process into thought processes, further differentiating themselves from oral peoples in speech as well as in writing. Ong argues that because recollection cannot be aided with, with literacy, knowledge, learning and forms of thinking are mnemonic, repetitive and highly structured. This is for non-literate people. Vastly different to the linear stylization of thought literacy allows. The use of heavily rhythmic balance patterns in repetition and antithesis or alliterations and assonances in epithetic and other formulatory expressions and and in standard settings reflects the fact that styling serious thought uses memory systems in the case of oral peoples. Thus the use of proverbs emerge in oral culture as an alternative to writing in storing knowledge to pass it on. The styling of oral not literal literate language which are additive rather than supportative, subordinative meaning that in order to store knowledge and, tran and translate it onto someone else you add another clause in a literate state whereas uh, in written words you can dissect and subordinate that knowledge and, and restructure it. it. means that analytical thought patterns become redundant as they would otherwise dissect and destroy the oral form of storing knowledge. Because of this fact, non-literate people find themselves unable to style their knowledge into linear, forward-moving analytical thoughts. Mm, maybe. By contrast, literate people internalise the linear writing process, partly born out of the fact that active high-end writing is so slow and so cannot think in the highly repetitive, structured way oral people use as a general matter of course. Literacy also styles legal systems, freezing legal codes, and aids in the introduction and remembrance of a more objective history where the past does not have to correspond directly with the present, so it's not context-based in order to have a retrieval of memory systems. Literacy also allows for an objective memory of lists and an abstract grasp of facts rather than dependent upon situational thinking or human-related narrative to recall them. 
This thus allows literate persons to take a disengaged objective stance on theoretical concepts and daily occurrences and encourages an analytical standpoint. Oral peoples, in contrast, without the written word to stylize their knowledge, praise, violent stories or description of landscapes, use exaggerated proverbs to the point of grandiosity so that facts will more easily be stored in their mind. Lastly, writing also stylizes self-thought. As reading is a solitary, solitary activity, it encourages inward reflection, whilst oral people think within a group mentality, thus reflecting the fact that while sight isolates, sound incorporates. Interesting modern day except day examples which illustrate these principles would be reality television which has a tendency to broadcast repetitive self-help transformations or simple or simply project images of an idealized way of life fashion food habits sexual technique or body for the working middle class masses to consume in a non-critical manner again the online by using a literate formula encourages analytical thinking in its consumers and also allows for interaction Language is jargon versus meaning making. It's a matter of art versus science. On the science end, it is important to standardise use of words, phrases and gestures in order to ensure optimised operalisation? Operation? Hmm. This is best done with a narrow scope that enables the repetition of a core vocabulary or jargon. The longer the duration of time spent with the same group of people, the more complex and comprehensive a language you can standardise. These jargons evolve as a function of use. Therefore, the language is straightforward, functional, and even if regarding a complex concept, brief. On the arts end, perfect and precise articulation of an emotional calibre enables the ability to take perspective, build perspective and share perspective. Exposure to many different sources and influences are so beneficial in enabling an individual to build a vocabulary to grasp at a way of expressing something complex or vaguely felt. Precision in conceptual expression is key to accurate schema construction. These two approaches to communication exist on a continuum. What is commonly felt becomes a proverb or aphorism, a schema that is quickly transmitted. At the other end of the scale, code of words can be pulled apart, teased for meaning, and stretched out of their compact form, like a hose being unwound. The danger of using the two approaches of communication interchangeably is that operational language can alienate with its implicit message that people and their emotions are not worthy of time investment and overly wordy speech can clutter, overcomplicate otherwise simple procedures or protocols. Rhetoric. Rhetoric is a simple Sorry, rhetoric is a typical artefact of communication in all oral and public cultures. It's an art of persuasion that hijacks the human capacity to communicate emotionally toned meanings via individual and shared symbols. These symbols act as warning labels, triggering schemas and a dense packet of information once activated. The process of communication takes these symbols and systematically interrogates each part to create a greater sophistication of understanding. It is this sophistication of comprehension that enables mobility through a world containing both physical and psychological dangers, navigating and equalising these threats via deeds and words. 
Beyond the greater complexity of logical thought that rhetoric permits, it also acts to enable creative expression, increasing fluidity of thought and capacity for lateral thought, where the known can be repurposed in an intuitive way to service the unknown. Its uses are both active and passive. Passive in that it enables the consumption and critique of others' rhetoric, i.e. capacity to listen for meaning, and active in that it enables the individual to give instruction, mobilise action, both in direction and scope, or share pleasure. Good rhetoric can be identified through its precise word selection, its appropriate use of literary devices, its tasteful choice of content and balanced choice of grammar, where enough length is taken to substantively and accurately convey the subject matter without decaying the audience's listening capacity. Rhetoric is a difficult skill to learn, but integral to navigating a world full of meanings. Learning. Beyond learning skills, deep learning and teaching can only occur when there is a deep and unmuddied understanding of the topic at hand. Deeper understanding is like a tree. The deeper the first roots are, the more stable and more diverse topics you can have branching out. Miss out the roots and you get a bunch of twigs and leaves and a clump of dirt with a test to sit on epidermis structure. When it comes to deep learning, though, I do think a circular approach works best. With the first lesson presenting the subject in its barest, most basic whole format, with each subsequent lesson circling over the same material with increasing detail and increasing practical relevance while never losing that underlying structure. In order to make this approach successful, it would need to be balanced with maths and music, that is, logic-based subjects that could teach quick and easy critical thinking skills of navigating through dense and complex information content. Learning curve. In informal usage, a steep learning curve means something that is difficult and takes much effort to learn. It seems that people are thinking of something like climbing a steep curve or mountain. It's difficult and takes effort. As it is technically used, however, a learning curve is not anything to be climbed and is simply a graph plotting learning that versus time. Thus, a steep learning curve would look like this, excuse the poor drawing, where there is a high volume of information um, downloaded in a small amount of time and then there is an equilibrium where that level of information kind of tapers off at the same high level. One natural interpretation of such a curve, which was the predominant early usage according to Wikipedia and still exists in some technical circles, is that the thing being learnt is easy. A great amount of learning happens in a small amount of time. This is the opposite of the popular usage. Now there is also apparently an interpretation of the same curve in the negative sense, probably something about a large amount of learning existing or that one never stops learning and keeps learning, but I'm not sure I understand how that's negative. So that is all a quote from someone on the internet. And my response to that is that those two approaches are not opposite but are instead dynamic. Learning principles allows the acquisition of a large volume of information at a quick rate but is difficult as it is resisted by our minds that naturally prefer the concrete, which is easy but slowly acquired packets of information and demands and gifts after much time a fluidity of thought if you can understand these principles before digging into the concrete. Learning principles allows for quick identification of paradoxes so you don't get trapped in them. A learning mechanism is neural connectivity. 
The mind on psychedelic mushrooms is many multiple times more connected than it is without, according to a study which I've drawn the picture from but have not cited. However, the more interconnected your brain, the better the memory. More connections equal better neural network mapping flow, which is closely matched by where a feeling caliber of something that is seen before triggers the next node, however apparently unrelated. So this is the mechanism by which a, um, an occurrence stimulates a, a metaphor for something that is very similar. For example, I spend a lot of time around someone with a certain accent and then that gives me the ability to understand people with a thicker version of that same accent and that metaphorically is the same thing or the same mechanism as someone getting a vaccination shot. Vaccination is basically a very tiny amount of a thing that your body learns to detect as a virus and learns how to neutralize and then being exposed to that virus means that you're already immunized to it as your body has already learnt that thing through a very small exposure. And that's neural connectivity, being able to see the similarity in mechanisms, if not subject matter. Alcohol, of course, destroys those neural connections. Understanding things as principles helps pinpoints pinpoint the nodes you can connect your experiences to and allows you to schematize your knowledge for learning and sharing in a jargonized way, even if the acquisition of that knowledge is based highly on rhetoric. After a while, you can take a hand in the net of your experiences and experience mindfulness.